Thanks, Kathleen. And it is Luke chapter 10, verses 1 to 24. I'm only saying that so that uh, anyone listening to this on our website will know which bit of the Bible we're looking at. And remember that because we are a group of friends, afterwards, ask any questions and uh, make any comments. Now, as we come into that passage, let me ask you to have a look at the screen and to, uh, I won't actually ask you to identify all the superheroes, but you can see the superheroes. And they're rippling with muscles, and uh, they're all able to do incredible things. The question is, who are the superheroes of uh, real life? And you might get a picture a bit more like this. In other words, uh, an ordinary group of people, fairly spotty, mostly goofy, very ordinary. And you could apply that to the people who go to church. The superheroes are the ones who are just uh, pretty run-of-the-mill, but who follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And they're not even superheroes in the sense that they're dressed in anything impressive. Because if you've been reading Luke chapter 9, you see that they're actually unimpressive. They're dressed in failure. And yet these are the real world savers. And we're going to learn that as we follow the journey of these 72 people going out two by two. Look at the way that people reacted to them and then understand what sort of part God played. And it's therefore very easy. You can predict what I'm going to say about the messengers, the hearers, and ultimately the God effect. I'm going to start by looking at the messengers. I'm going to keep that little picture in the background. So you see that we're talking about ordinary people, nothing special. And God is sending his 72 messengers, but before they go and speak to anybody out there, the first thing that he, they have to do is to speak to him. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Why? Because 72 isn't enough. Why? Because ultimately, if this is a training mission for going out into the whole world, you might just find a couple of extra disciples would be handy. But I think actually there's more of a reason why we pray for other disciples to join. And it's got to do with the way God does relationships. And the way God reaches out to people is something that is very attractive. We call that evangelism. And I want to say five things about the way God reaches out to people about evangelism from these verses that we just looked at under the heading messengers. First is that they are people who stay. Can you see in verse 7 that they stay with the people that they're living with, eating and drinking, whatever they give, and they don't go from house to house. That's very interesting, isn't it? These days, if uh, we want to find out about uh, how to uh, help people become Christians, we usually run a course, Alpha, Christianity Explored, 
And we ask people to come to that and we might give them a cup of tea and then they go home again. But can you see how this is entirely different? This is actually staying with people in their homes, eating and drinking with them. And if this is the best way that God says evangelism happens, then obviously we're going to need more disciples because we're going to need personal missionaries to every home. Because relationships work like this. And so therefore when we think about Praying for evangelism, it's very easy, isn't it, to pray that God will bring some big-name speaker massively able to persuade people, another Billy Graham. Whereas actually what he wants is his disciples to pray that there will be other people just like them going into ordinary homes. And this is how evangelism is going to be done, by people staying. That, I think, has significance for us. Obviously, we're doing this kind of work, and this speaks to us. We're going out to meet people in their homes and to have relationships with them as much as we can in friendship. But it is equally important that we don't neglect the ordinary opportunities we have naturally to eat and drink with people, mainly, therefore, people in our families, maybe our close friends, who we'll spend this kind of time with. We don't want to be passionate about doing door-to-door -door work and neglecting the opportunities that we have relationally in other places. We need to stay with people. The second thing that we see is that this is Satan toppling ministry. If you look at verse 3, and you'll see that uh, the disciples are being sent out like lambs among wolves. That's a recipe for a massacre, isn't it? What chance the lamb's going to be standing against wolves? And it is very interesting to see how they come back. If you look at verse 17, they don't look like they come back massacred. The 72 returned with joy, and they said, Even the demons submit to us in your name. And Jesus says, And I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what can we learn from that? Certainly we can learn that the disciples must have had some sort of favorable uh, response in order that they would be happy that amongst all the rejection, there were some who received. But I think actually there's something even more attractive. And that is that the very act of going out in twos, the simple task of evangelism, whatever the result, as that is happening, Satan topples because that's the point at which he is defeated. He just simply cannot stop it happening. And if you can't stop evangelism happening, then your end has come because how are you going to stop the gospel from spreading if you can't stop people going out two by two? It's all very well if uh, Satan can keep people buttoned up in a church. Preferably just in the space of a church service. And they come and they sit for that and then they go home again. But the minute a church goes out 
and starts meeting people in this kind of way, then he's running out of options. He just simply cannot stop it, and nor can anything else. If you look at verse 19, the authority on snakes and scorpions, I don't think is a big puzzle if you understand that Satan is king snake in the Bible, especially if you've understood Genesis chapter 3. In other words, there is no manifestation of Satan that can ever stop Christians going out and doing the work of the gospel. Now look, there are lots of things that people might suggest will undermine Satan. But there is nothing that is recorded that will topple him apart from people taking the gospel out to others. It is a Satan-toppling ministry that we do as we follow their steps. Thirdly, it is a wonderful ministry of safety. Look at verse 5. When you enter a house, first say, peace to this house. Now, that can be seen as something very superficial. Why is that significant? I want to suggest that, incidentally, when it says here, uh, first say, peace to this house, is someone who promotes peace is there, your peace will rest on them. Uh, actually, what Luke says originally is, if a son of peace is there. A person of, uh, who promotes peace is much more politically correct because it takes away uh, uh, the, the bloke side of what Luke is saying, but nonetheless, that's the point that he says, that there is a person not who promotes peace. Luke doesn't actually say that. What he says is there's a person there who values peace. Now, I want to suggest to you that the person who responds to the offer of peace is the person with whom that offer resonates with a particular need in their life. So they say, hey, talk to me about peace because actually I need this peace that you're talking about. Now you might say, well, that applies to absolutely everybody. Surely everybody's got enough problems to want a bit of peace. But this is a bigger request than that because what the Bible tells us is that our little problems where we don't have peace and often because God is not in the way we're looking at life. Those little problems that we find ourselves in are really anticipating a much bigger problem that is coming up in the future where God's judgment will be expressed upon us. And the little problems that we have are little foretastes of that. The little clouds in the sky before the perfect storm arrives. Jesus says in verse 12 that there will be people on that day that will certainly value God's peace. So when we're talking about peace, we're talking about those who uh, will want uh, that uh, offer of safety, who will say, look, I want peace not in the sense that I want these little circumstances of my life to change. I want God's peace so that I'm filled with God in a way that changes me. 
and then the way I handle those circumstances will be very different. So that is another aspect of the messenger's work that is great. Another thing is that they serve. Look at verse 8. When you enter the town now welcome, eat what is offered to you. In other words, don't go demanding a better bed or a better meal. What Luke is recording to you is saying is, look, your method needs to reflect your message. You're talking about a God who serves. Therefore, you are to serve. You are to put the family first, not your own appetites. What they're having, you join them, because the family you're with, they're far more important than the food that they provide needs. And so it is very impressive, isn't it? When Christians begin to serve people in a very genuine way like that, people say that what Christianity needs are not more salesmen, just a few more free samples. We want people to reflect the message that we take, a serving message that brings peace to others. And then lastly, it is the supreme work that there is to do in verse 16. Whoever listens to you listens to me. Whoever rejects you rejects me. But whoever rejects me rejects him who sent me. You might say, how is it that people experience God? And the answer is they experience God in this way. In uh, verse 9, this is the point at which the kingdom of God has come near to you. Now imagine the scene. There's a knock on the door and you open it and you've got two tired-looking disciples who look like they're fit to drop. And what this passage tells us is you won't get closer to God than with these two. This is the point at which you are at your closest to God. Take note. Now a lot of people say to me, I believe God if only he would make his presence felt. If he would turn up himself and stand here or do something to attract my attention, then I'll believe in him. And mostly, I suppose, they're looking for some kind of miracle or special effects. And what this passage tells us is that actually the nearest they will get to God is through the messengers that he sends to them. And if you think about it, there is no better way. Because who else can explain God, can listen to your questions, that can help you to find the answers that you need from what God has said. Who else can do that apart from another person? And so therefore, what you do when you go around is the supreme work. People will not get close to God than when you turn up to speak to them. It is an incredible work, isn't it, for the messengers to do. It's important that we take heart as we work in our new church and understand the importance of relationships, of staying, of eating, of drinking, of that kind of time, that we understand it's Satan-topping work. It is that important. The only work that will do it. That we understand that what we're doing is providing safety and peace 
for those who understand that their difficulties in life are just a small version of what's to come. Who are willing to serve, putting others first, and who understand that they do that all, knowing that it is the most supreme work that we can do to bring God close. What about these hearers? Well, sadly, you've got uh, lots and lots of verses telling us that their basic message is no thanks. And we ask ourselves, so what did the disciples do wrong to get rejected like this? And the answer is they didn't. It is up to the hearers to listen carefully and to respond. So if you think of uh, those cross uh, uh, lines as a sort of crossroads, it is a huge responsibility that when the person comes from Jesus, that at that moment in time, how they respond to them will either result in a future in heaven or in hell. It is that important that uh, uh, the responsibility uh, should be taken seriously. There is, as I said before in verse 12, that day when it would be far better for Sodom that was completely destroyed than for the person who says no to the messengers of Jesus. You see, we just think that uh, uh, hell is stuffed with people who don't know anything about God. And what this passage tells us is that hell is stuffed with people who know everything about God. Who've actually had the opportunity to meet with Jesus, who've actually understood about his miracles, his identity, produced in their town and they don't respond. What about the people who don't hear? Well, if you're talking about places like uh, uh, Sodom in verse 12, and uh, there's Tyre's Karazin and Bethsaida, uh, or sorry, uh, Tyre and Sidon, they hadn't heard. Well, they will be punished, and God is right to punish sinners for their sin. God is under no obligation to tell people first that what they're doing is wrong and will be judged. He can do that because it is the right thing for him to do. But the question is not so much what's going to happen to those who haven't heard, it's these towns that have heard. And you say, Jesus is not for me. That is when it gets serious. And people have had their chance, and it's come, and it's gone. And it is staggering, isn't it, verse 15, that a whole town like Capernaum, which had such brilliant miracles done, is heading for hell. So you might then think, is hell therefore going to be a very empty place if even the places that have heard about Jesus haven't done anything? Well, this is where our last point comes in, where we look at the God effect. Jesus, in verse 21, is full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So it doesn't seem like he is anticipating an empty heaven. Otherwise, he wouldn't be that full of joy. And the reason why he's full of joy is because God 
has revealed these things to little children. Wherever you read little children in the Bible, you're usually talking about people who are helpless. And if you want to understand what little children do, in the sense of the grown-up version, then just look at uh, verse 13. The expression of people who are helpless are that they sit in sackcloth and ashes. In other words, the ones who are willing to admit we've got God all wrong. And we need to express ourselves. We're not going to try and cover it up. We'll go public with the fact that we've got God wrong. That's what sackcloth and ashes does. And as they admit their distance from God in that way, then that's the childlike helplessness that Jesus is talking about, that God creates in people, often by things going wrong in their lives. And they then begin to see that actually they need God's rescue more than anything else. God makes children. He reveals the need for peace to children. But there are others, the wise and the learned, in verse 21, who just know so much that they don't need sackcloth and ashes. We've never got things that badly wrong. We're okay. And uh, the end result is that they know so much that what they should know is hidden from them. Now, I think uh, what that uh, means to us is that God is to be massively praised for the way he keeps reaching out to a world that is rejecting him. Look at what he's doing. He's sending people. He is offering peace. And uh, he is uh, uh, wonderfully um, uh, uh, keeping things from the proud who know so much that they don't listen, but nonetheless revealing them to babies who are willing to go into sackcloth mode because they know that they've fallen foul of uh, the living God. And that means, you see, when someone becomes a Christian, we don't actually praise ourselves and say, well, at least I had the good sense to be a baby, to realize that I was helpless in front of God. And we don't even praise the messengers. There's such a kind thing that this person came and explained the gospel to me, although there's a good place for us to do that. But our prime praise is focused like Jesus' praise in verse 21, praising God the Father for turning us into babies. Often by putting our lives into such a shape that we need him to come to us and bring us his peace. So what does that mean to us today? It's a long, hard, dusty, sunny day, but what could we learn from it? Well, first, I think, if you're someone who's new, and uh, many people are just wondering about uh, uh, Jesus, maybe someone's listening to this talk on our website, it is actually an amazing thing to realize 
how the graciousness of God can be found. It is by him sending people to help others to find out what he is like. In that sense, it is a great privilege just to be here and to understand how he operates. It's a wonderful thing that we do that. But while God goes to that extent to show us what he's like, we need to understand, don't we, that there is a huge responsibility that we don't just simply nod or switch off or in the end turn away from him. If he said this to the people in his day, wouldn't he say to the people in our day, well, woe to you, Beckentree. You had people come to your door. It'd be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day. What about uh, if you're somebody who's been in church all your life and you know these things and these are really easy stories and you understand uh, what they're like and what they're saying and you're part of the in crowd. Well, be careful because Capernaum was a city of God's people, if you like, a city of the Incrad. Look what happened to them in verse 15. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You will go down to Hades. That's another word for hell. So we need to be uh, careful, don't we? Uh, it's a better badge to be in sackcloth and ashes humbled at the way we let God down than to claim our membership of a town that has seen God do great things. Membership of a church where God has done great things. So we need to be careful how we play the church card, remembering what happened to others who might have played it. And then lastly, if you're somebody who's a real disciple, well, what is it that uh, we can learn uh, from uh, what we've uh, looked at this evening. And the answer is, keep being messengers. Keep being messengers in this kind of way, in a relational way. Stay with people. Spend this kind of time eating, drinking, investing in those relationships. Not just on the doors, but amongst our friends and the ones that we eat and we drink with. Understand that God is a God who brings peace when he's created uh, situations where people are more likely to hear about it and listen to it and want it. This is Satan toppling ministry. Do it with great joy. In fact, do it with even greater joy than the Old Testament prophets because the last verse tells us that many prophets and kings wanted to see what you see but didn't see it and to hear what you hear but didn't hear it. Do you realize that when you go out in the streets you've got more help to give people than even an Elijah or a David because you're on this side of Jesus and you can speak about God with far greater accuracy than they could. So yeah, these are hugely privileged times that we're living in, that we can go out in these ways. But my friends, that is not the joy. 
if you want the joy to keep doing this job, don't look for it in the importance of the job. Look for it in the truth of what we're saying. That is that your names are written in heaven. The greatest joy that will keep us going through the good days, through the bad days, through the acceptance, through the rejection, the thing that will keep us is that awareness, that understanding that God loves us and he's written our names in heaven. That's how personal it is with his love. When we go down the streets, that is what we hold on to in our minds. Let's pray and uh, ask questions as we think more about uh, this wonderful news.